Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 14, can you believe it, of How Not, the not-so-brand-new but still-very-shiny podcast hosted by me, Luca Manning. And me, Kim McCary. And as you know, we're two gobby Scottish creatives that like to talk about the big stuff, and we now know that you do indeed like to listen. Our podcast is here to remind you to be great, great, great troublemakers. Think big and ask how not. Hi, Kim. Hi. If we sound a bit weird this week, it's because we're out on our own, aren't we? We're not in the confines of the uh, Priscilla Palace. We're not. It's a bit of a shame, really. But um, schedule, you know, everyone's, the world's really gone back, hasn't it? And everyone's schedules are crazy again. Um, So, yeah, we're recording from home this morning. And, yeah, it feels weird not to be able to... I mean, I don't think I touch you that much anyway, but just knowing that it was an option was always fun. I know. And now that exactly. I don't have it, I just want to reach out and touch you. Um, There's a song in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, Yeah, this is nice. Um, uh, It's the earliest we've ever recorded. It is, yeah. yeah. Um, but that's okay, because you're you're like a morning person. A morning person. So I usually get up at, like... Got up about five today. I mean, so I just, I thought I was good half seven, <laughs> but bloody hell. So yeah, this is good. Done some work. Uh, read a bit of Bell Hooks, which I can tell you about later. Oh, um, yeah, please do. Caught up on some news. Mm, and uh, the now I'm ready to go. Brilliant. Now I want coffee number two. Look at you go. Yeah. What, what coffee do you, like, how do you make your coffee at home? Well... Well, um, I feel like I've opened a can of worms. You have uh, exciting worms. So, in our house, there are three caffeinated drinks there is tea, there is coffee, and there is milky. So, milky is a specific drink, which is um, my um, tummy is a very sensitive little being, and so real coffee sometimes gives me a bad tummy. Mm. Milky is um, is like is instant coffee with a lot of milk in it, and I call it milky because it's like if you treat it as coffee, you'll be really disappointed because it will be disgusting coffee. Mm. If you just call it a different drink, if you go into it with you know open arms and just be like, this is just a different drink, which isn't coffee or tea, then it's a far better experience. You've found, so. you've managed to find your own kind of placebo effect. Exactly. Exactly. I like that. Um, so but that's where I'm at. Is it? But do you do it with milk, milk with Coos milk? Yeah. Interesting, because I I always thought that like, because so, I guess some people get bad tummy from dairy, don't they? So that would they be do. an issue. But coffee can be bad as well, can't it? Like, um, well, because I'm celiac, my insides have been ravaged, and yeah, that's they're, why they're angry. They're yeah. so angry. But yeah, cow's milk is the one. Uh, we do have a, an assortment of milks in the house, actually, but. Um, I'm not really on board with the soy milk. Soy is a bit, to me, sorry, mum, but like soya is a bit like basic bitch. Like it's really bland and can go a bit funky when you Mm. don't want it to, like not good funky. Um, to me, like you're coming to me with oat milk or you're, you're not coming to the party. Like oat milk has changed my life. Well, that's good. That's a good testimonial. Maybe you can be sponsored by. Literally, if minor figures want to sponsor this podcast, we will. You're all over it. We we are all over that. Um, I just feel like yeah. when I drink soy milk, and I don't know if this is a kind of psychological thing or is real, but I just it just tastes like edamame beans to me. It tastes like soybeans, Ooh. and I don't want a sushi sort of memory in with my a sushi drink. milky. <laughs> I don't, don't no one wants that milky yeah. sushi yeah. I, there's probably a restaurant somewhere that does that probably um, anyway I here we are talking about milky sushi <laughs> and um, I was thinking about this I mean we, we have like we actually went on a very very exciting little pod day out yesterday and we'll talk about that later um, and that's the kind of meat on the bone of the, the episode maybe but there's been a lot going on in the world actually so I thought it'd be a good opportunity to touch base with you because kim's like my my kind of like moral and artistic soundboard for how i live my <laughs> life right so i just kind of like bounce ideas off of 
Kim and, and see where it goes. So let's talk about some shit. The football, what the fuck's happening with the football, Kim? What what yeah. is this thing that we're missing? I know. Like I know. We've we've the two of us have failed to be sort of whipped up into the mm. frenzy that the rest of England seems to have been. Yeah, I live in Wembley, so that's really fun around football time. Um so usually in normal times what would happen in a normal football match is that Wembley kind of gets split in half. So when the football fans come to the tube, come out of the tube station, depending on where their affiliations are, they mm. get funneled left or right so that there's no scrapping because we know yeah. that they all love a scrap. Um, and so there's some pubs that are, are for one group of people and some that are for the other. Um, but this is different. This is like everyone is our friends now because we've united against a common enemy yeah. which uh and so it was just like uh, some of the pubs near my house were charging like 25 pounds to get in the door oh my god um i can't imagine how much money they made in the last few days but yeah it sounded I mean, like a war zone i day. hope that like pubs do well because of it and i think they're smart to get on the euro fever and like for sure be playing the football and all that i must say i'm actively looking for pubs that aren't playing the football um yes. and your poor little ripley your poor little dog as well yeah she's yeah she who's she just um fed in to say that she also hates it yeah yeah i know she chimed in there and i <laughs> thought oh yeah you've got something to say um yeah, she doesn't like noises outside at night. And so the other night was not good for her because it was like this sort of animalistic kind of war cry for a couple of hours and then just car horns for like five hours into the night. And I am I was thinking like, I'm sure if you beep your horn that much, your horn's going to break because <laughs> those horns aren't meant to be just used continually. Yeah. So I was like, man, you need to be thinking about this. Don't be silly. Uh, so. I Sunday's going to be carnage, bad. carnage, yeah. and I'm yeah I'm struggling like because it's weird because when the Euros first came around, well when they first started, can't even remember. Um, I feel like I didn't know that many people that were interested. I knew a few, yeah, and then now like so many of my friends have jumped on it, like, and they're cool people. <laughs> yeah right yeah. and i'm like what like really and i'm like listen whatever floats your boat like we love like it is entertainment and it is yep. a, some a somewhat fucked up sense of like community and camaraderie but i just can't get on board with the english pride thing it really makes me feel a bit sick at the back of my mouth and i think that's maybe a scottish thing like yeah. or a Celtic thing because like, I know my Irish friends are also not giving a fuck about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's hard. We've talked about this before. It is really hard to have national like the English national pride is so kind of complex and. I know, and, and I want people to be things. able to have. Like, I feel like it's bad to be like, like yeah. to to say what I'm saying, but it just still has like it gives me the ick every time I see the flag. I'm like, oh. I know yeah. it has a really um like visceral reaction on me, which is is obviously it's not the fault of any one thing but it's just like all of these factors and that that's a flags are a really weird symbol anyway you know yeah. they're about like ownership of land which is a sort of mm. weird thing but one of the when i was on the tube coming home and it was the day of the match so got to one thing i do find fascinating actually about football is football chants oh my god yeah and often they don't understand where they're even coming from right because they're yeah yeah um and i think so there's people who it's really interesting how it's like spontaneously erupts and there's like certain ones and obviously because it's really far away from my world i'm thinking like have you talked about this beforehand like yeah. who right who who comes up with these and do you spread them around do you have a whatsapp group how you do it ah. um and so when yeah, we're boys, on the champ for this saturday is <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> to the tune of this i'd and like so to was, say it was more like a jam a kind of jazz improvised yeah kind of session you someone know, just picks it someone up picks and it up and then you're like you're riffing off each other next thing somebody's doing a little solo exactly and everyone's just loving it but see on the tube i think i don't know maybe they were trying some out before they got to oh, the stadium. Oh, yeah, yeah, see which ones stick. Yeah, and there was a couple of fairly weak ones. So one of them was just fuck off Denmark over and over again. Oh, okay. Um, 
And then there was one um, which I didn't appreciate, which was um, Scotland always fuck it up. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, okay, you've won a couple of matches, but let's not get fucking giddy here. <laughs> like, yeah, also, not... like... Oh. Yeah. Um, but also, I'm like, I've heard some really... There was one about Harry Kane's big giant chin, and that was to the tune of something else, and I thought there's a bit of creativity there. Mm. Um, but a lot of them were quite weak. So well, I hope that they practised in the interim hours, and then they were good when they arrived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I have struggled with the chanting, actually, because so when it was the Scotland-England match, mm. I was on my way to do someone's recital. Mm-hmm. And was on the tube, and about I told you this actually about twenty kind of young Burberry scarf wearing, no mask lads got on the the tube, and they just started shouting Scotland get battered everywhere they go, and then yeah. and then it was like fuck you Scotland you Fenian bastards, and yeah. it all got a little yeah. bit more kind of politically charged, mm-hmm. and then we had a nice rendition of Rule Britannia. Yeah, it, I don't think they could actually find a key, so it was kind of <laughs> multi-tonal, which polytonal, which was nice. quite interesting. Um, but yeah, that actually, it, I did become progressively more scared actually because I was like, there was like twenty of these really aggressive, like pack animals, yeah. making a very direct kind of statement that if you were supporting Scotland, you were they were going to fight with you. Yeah, and then I was like obviously not visibly like they had no idea that i was actually scottish mm-hmm. but i was just like get me off this fucking tube right now like i, I was like, imagine i did have a wee soul tire like painted on my face or something i like, know they'd, they'd have went for me you know i know and then like that was like one of the biggest like examples of like feeling othered that i've had mm-hmm. in london like for being scottish and then like yeah i was like in soho on saturday night which was like the second last england game and like I was with a group of friends and we've been to a drag show and like you go in Soho for a drink and you think it's like our space and like, you know. Yep. And there was just like this massive brawl between all these guys like like punching the shit out of each other and like I was like, fuck's sake, like don't take Soho off us. Like, you know, I know. it was horrible. We've got nowhere and then, left. And then like, um, yeah, the match the other night, like I'd just been to see Celeste at Union Chapel. Incredible and just iconic. Oh, my phone's ringing. Don't know who that is. Sorry, um, they can wait. I am becoming a broadcasting superstar. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, Ben C. Celeste, iconic performance, beautiful, beautiful. In Union Chapel, I was like, oh my God, I've just seen this like amazing bit of live music, this art. And then um, the minute I stepped out and got into the that like, me and my pal were just like head down, like just trying to walk as quickly as we can. Like, because it's that way, everyone's so riled up, whether they win, lose or draw, everyone's just so riled up. Mm-hmm. And so pissed that, like, if there's any, they're just looking for any kind of way to, like, direct that adrenaline. So, like, yeah. uh, you see a lot of, like, um, a rise in, like, just kind of, like, harassment, I think, for anyone mm-hmm. that's not a kind of white cis het male. Because yep. all these white cis het males have so much pent up adrenaline that they just need to direct it somewhere. And, like, I've really noticed that the nights I've felt most unsafe on the street have tended to be match nights um and like i want everyone to have their fun like as i say i have so many friends so many female friends so many queer friends who are loving the football right now Mm -hmm. and i'm so aware of that and i think it's a beautiful thing that like they can put on that england shirt and feel a part of it and like feel themselves but there's no denying that i have not felt safe when those matches have been on it just feels like such a volatile sort of aggy energy like like you like we were talking about the other day like um, the statistics show that domestic violence increases whether the team wins or loses. Yeah, that's And like fun. you say, everyone's just so riled up. And then we've talked about this before as well, which is like, unless you have lots of different outlets for your emotions or you have a really kind of consistent uh, way of expressing yourself, it's like a pressure cooker. Because exactly, everything that, comes out on that yeah, one. Yeah, right? th- that sort of 90-minute period is like months of all of people's yeah. life's experiences coming out. And like, I've been on, you know, cause the, I mean, this Wembley stadium also puts on like big gigs and I've like been on the tube. I think when the Spice Girls had just finished yeah, and it was like, 
I would say a similar volume, similar kind of rowdiness, but it didn't feel like an unsafe energy. Mm. And it, it just, it felt just far more like straightforward kind of like people expressing themselves, but not in a way that it could turn. Because I often feel like, you know, I'm thinking about Sunday and if England lose, then it's like, oh, I don't, That's that would make me feel even less safe. Yeah. You know, all these kind of really cross people. And like, we know how powerful this is to, to belong to something and to feel yeah, part of something. Yeah, and, and like, I am no stranger to a fucking street party and a celebration. Like, Absolutely. I, like, around me, they'd literally blocked all the roads, like, for partying in the street. And I was like, you know, the only thing that I was thinking about was, fucking hell, see if this means that pubs have to shut because Rona fucking takes over again, you know. But then, it, no. you know, I, I'm, I just find it hypocritical, you know, really hypocritical that, like, in the summer when... I was out like going to protests and stuff and like mm -hmm. masking up and like walking again, like marching for people that were literally being murdered by the state. I was getting told that I was at risk of like spreading Rona and then like the England fans, like the police do just stand and sit by and watch. Like they do not uh, like break them up with the same force. It just feels a little bit like better, like, you know, because I, I want people to be able to celebrate, but like how are they allowed to like have such a good time and then like, literally the minute like a protest or something comes up then they're like dispersing it every minute yeah exactly and uh i read that there was an article um the other day that was like i guess highlighted the kind of inequity to approach between like cultural events and sports events um as we sort of open up af um after covid mm. and they and it was like a little satirical article and honestly there is literally nothing worse than someone like bastardizing a thing but i'm gonna do it right now because i can't remember it or find it um where it was like yep they bring it on themselves you know people the amount of brawls that take place because people go to sit in row d seat 23 and then they sit in 24 by mistake and then they all spit on each other and lick each other and some people feel so excited they vomit in the street you know <laughs> and it's like it it's like it, those things those things really highlight the sort of there's so many differences but of course there's a really important class divide and i think that is a that yeah. is an issue because undoubtedly um football is a, really embraces working class in a way that a lot of other things are very exclusionary to um but this inequity is 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 just is feeling because i mean we we experience it firsthand but the nighttime economy and the cultural economy are like on their knees and we're just not getting the same approach to things you yeah. know um, and like they're talking about adding in like a day off. People are allowed to go to work and go to school late on Monday. They're thinking about adding an extra bank holiday. <laughs> like this is mental. Like, I this mean, is insane. Uh, but then, as we say, when you make that really good point about it being, you know, a, a working majority working class demographic, then I'm like, yeah, fucking give these folk a day off. Let them yeah. enjoy themselves. Let them let off some steam. Like, yeah, you know. But just please don't heckle me when I have my hoops in the street, you know? Exactly. That, like, just let's all exist together and yeah. be safe. Yeah. Um, talking about the attack on protest, mm. where are we at? I mean, the Police Crime and Sentencing Bill passed its third reading in Parliament with a majority of 100 votes this week. It did. It passed fairly smoothly. It wasn't a close-run thing. Um, yeah, I mean, we I, I got closer. to the point where I was like, is this actually happening? Well, I mean, in, on the one hand, it, the fight's not over yet. And, it, you know, protest was important to, to kind of slow it down. But on the other hand, it's perilously close to actually happening. And uh, this is, I think, something that we encounter quite a lot with um, kind of how people connect with these issues where there's like a critical point where um awareness spreads really quickly about an issue and everyone gets on board and everyone you know feels really strongly and there's a kind of initial momentum but because the kind of the bureaucracy because the political process takes so long and is drawn out you lose people lose steam along yeah. the way and so then it becomes easier to get things through because yes you've got this big mass of people um 
protesting it before its first reading. Then the, the second reading, the group's a bit smaller. The third reading, it's smaller again. And it's it's really hard to keep that momentum and that energy up because, of well, course, life goes on. Also, as you things. say, people are tired. Yep. You know, if it, we're, we're, we're protesting so many things. I mean, in that same week, we saw that, you know, I feel like it was a bit of a grim week, really, for, for news on social media. You know, the police crime sentencing bill and then, you know, last Friday... The, the this man in Spain, Samuel, was yeah. murdered, beaten to death in the last he was twenty four years old and the last words he heard before he died were faggot. Yeah. And protests have been happening all over Spain in, in solidarity with Samuel in opposition to this kind of worryingly kind of rising trend um of violence against queer people across Spain. But you know that I, I was looking at all of these articles and there was another thing like like the Pride Parade in Georgia had to be cancelled because of counter demonstrators coming in and trashing all their equipment and offices and threatening people before it even began. So they had to cancel yeah. it because they couldn't afford to, to risk um, the, the safety of their community. And I, I was just like looking at all of these things and I was like, fucking hell, like it's really grim. And, and this is like just coming out of Pride Month and we are like, it made me think a couple of things like, it made me be extremely grateful for the visibility that I have around about me, like the representation that I have around about me that isn't always mm -hmm. led by like commercial like lines of, of representation or the state or whatever. I just mean like mm. the people that I surround myself with. Yeah. And also like how grateful I am to, to live authentically. That obviously doesn't mean there's kickback, but like, you know, I in the whole sure. like feel able to live authentically myself. But like if anyone dares still kind of question the need for community or solidarity or pride or protest based on those three bits of news that I read this week, it just it just seems absurd to me. And um, absolutely, I'm reading this book at the moment. It's called We Can Do Better, and it's edited by Amelia Abraham. And it's like a she's essentially created. I think it's like over twenty five voices that she deems kind of worth listening to from the queer community. Mm. and they each write a piece to contribute to this book and it the, the kind of overarching thing is like so we have like all this legislation and this assimilation of like marriage and whatever and like but why is it still a radical act to walk down the street holding someone's hand in a same sex couple why are trans lives still up for debate why are there still disproportionate rates of suicide and mental health issues and addiction mm -hmm. issues in our community like it doesn't really add up and it's looking at the nuances of queer life and sure you know being able to go yeah well we've got this but do we really have this and that also around the world in other countries where it's still illegal and where people are brutalized by the state so um yeah i've been thinking a lot about that recently coming off the back of what was actually the really great pride month i feel um, mm. thinking about how far we have come and how where the where the energy should be directed next actually yeah absolutely i was i started reading um owen jones book the establishment oh, yeah. the other the other day and um uh just even in just the kind of the foreword he was talking about the fact that kind of there's such there's been such a successful um movement to distract um people's uh anger and kind of criticism away from those in power um either turning it inward so that people um fight with each other as mm -hmm. we see a lot or to just distract in other ways like we also see a lot and um to look at you know even for to take for example matt hancock's affair now matt hancock in his time as health secretary did a number of morally ethically abhorrent things mm. that he was paid for that was his actual job. But the thing that we all decided was the straw that broke the camel's back was infidelity. Now, I honestly, I couldn't care less about what people choose to do in their private life. Yeah. Um, that's their decision. And I'm sure, it, you know, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about anything because none of us understand the context around that. So whatever that is, but it's a very useful distraction. But it does make me, I saw a thing today that said like, if we all united you know if we use the energy that we used to kind of 
uh, hate the opposing football team. How could we, if you know, we could overthrow the government totally, in like half an totally. hour? Um, and it's and it is this, it's this kind of perpetual issue that we see about like so much wasted energy. Um, when we all have finite energy, when we're all working hard and we're tired, where do you place that remaining bit of energy? And that and that's basically what activism is, right? It's just energy. It's just directed mm. energy at a cause. And it's so easy, especially with the media, to distract the energy away, to just, just deflect it in another direction. And one of the things it referenced was, do you remember a couple of years ago, there was that programme on Channel 4, Benefit Street? Yes. Um and yeah, Owen Jones was like, and where were the programs like Banker Street or yeah. you know, and and that's it's a real point, you know, this poverty porn thing, it, it it really took off in that that kind of period, and it was it was it could be defended, and people did defend it as being important to raise kind of visibility, but all this stuff comes with such agenda, and like you say, well, there's when there's no balance, when there's no counter, you know. Um, I would be far happier with a programme like that existing if a programme on the other side also existed. Yeah. But it doesn't. It doesn't. And so I think we're at a really critical point now where, like, everyone is so full of emotion and feeling because we've been locked in the house for a year and a half and we've lost people and it, the world has changed so quickly and it's like, it's a head fuck to try and understand how we move forward. Yeah. And there's so much going on, but it's like, if we don't direct the energy properly... We're just going to all explode, mm. you know, and it's it is hard. It's really hard to. And to we not need get outlets for that. Like we do mm -hmm. need people going to Wembley Stadium and roaring, and and people going to nightclubs and dancing until five a.m. and people going yep. to gigs and sobbing their heart out and singing and playing. Like we need all of these things to 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 use what we've gone through. Mm -hmm. and and to to kind of cleanse our souls a bit but we need to do it in a way that also guides the energy to 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 recognize what got us here and and yeah. and the decisions that were made and sometimes people just have anger and they don't know where to direct it and mm -hmm. it's important to people someone like Owen Jones is a very good example of someone that can go here you go this is what's been going on yeah Go and, you know, go and be angry is, at that. Go and be angry at that, yeah. Talking about soul cleansing experiences. Yeah. Talk was, about yeah. our exhibition. Yes, yeah. So I guess I'd just seen lots of kind of sexy Instagram vids of like people I follow going to this and was like, this looks cool. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. I just sent it to you, didn't I? Mm -hmm. And was like, let's go to this. Let's um, go to this. What was it? So it was... Uh, Ryoshi Ikeda's exhibition, his largest um, exhibition to date, yeah. um, at 180 The Strand. Um, first time I've ever gone to an exhibition and been given little booties, little shoe covers. Oh my god, it was hilarious. Yeah, we had to cover our shoes. <laughs> and it was like, you know the things you get at the swimming pool? That's like what, yeah. you had to put them over your shoes. And we were a bit like, I mean, I didn't know if we were going to be going into like, liquids or i know like it was it's it was quite because we got like a pre-exhibition uh briefing yeah we? we did yeah 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 which was quite an intense experience actually because mm. you i guess you're used to just kind of drifting in and out of these things but yeah. this was like okay get ready strap i'm gonna in. take you through like there's alternative routes for anyone that's epileptic if yeah. it all becomes a bit much, just let me know. And I was like, what the fuck if I said... Because <laughs> no. I was reading up and it had been described as like a, a multi-sensory assault course. And I thought, okay, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, well, sounds quite violent. But yeah, it was set up to us to be something quite violent, I suppose. Yeah, and there was just a sense of like... Um, Fear. The, yeah, <laughs> and the person, you know, the guide, um, I guess, communicating, it's okay, like, I'm here, I've got you. Um, which is like, oh, do we need to be reassured? Oh my god, this yeah. is like, this. and we, I think we both arrived a little bit kind of tired, a little bit sort of mm. uh, weary, Aggie. and it was like a little bit aggy, exactly. And then the shoe covers went on, and that's an interesting sort of thing. But actually, uh, it was an incredibly cleansing experience, wasn't it? Yeah, I felt like I'd gone into a void and 
like screamed for like an hour, but I'd actually not had to do any of the screaming myself because yeah. I was just kind of being screamed at. Yeah. But it was like being screamed at so and you could f- but you could feel it in your bones so like it was kind of like it was coming from you as well like so like Ryoji is like a, a, a Japanese visual and sound artist and like it focuses on the essential characteristics of sound itself and that of visuals as light by means of both mathema- mathematical precision and mathematical aesthetics which sounds very fucking boring but actually is so true and, and it's so exciting like or everything was so beautifully kind of connected, but also different to what had come before. I think mm-hmm. like we went into this first room and there was just these like L- like light panels that yeah. would like come up with like little grids and like bits of code and be like really really high pitched frequencies, like the ones that you can like just hear, you know, as a human. Yeah. Um, and kind of going, blah, 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 you know, all that kind of stuff. That's my impersonation. Nice. Um, and then each panel was like different in its aesthetic. Like, yeah. And yeah. And then there was just this like tunnel of white light that you want. Really down. intense it light. Was really intense. I put on sunglasses. <laughs> um, it was a moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, really intense. And then, and then the next room was like just these huge, like, um, like sound wave. Things. Yeah, like you know, massive like, speakers yeah, that like, were really directional. Like the ones you get on like the roof of BBC broadcasting. Like yeah. those big like spaceship things. Yeah, and there's like the Doppler effect all around the room. So yeah. um, like depending, was there six or eight? Depending on where you were in relation to the speaker, the sound really changed, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like, it was, it really was a room that, you needed to be in lots of different parts of to have a kind of full-ish experience. Yeah, I like instantly went like right to the back corner. Yeah. And that was really exciting. And then uh, like when you'd like slowly walk around, you'd like be caught between two frequencies and it would right. be like, really painful, but also yeah. quite exciting and like stuff like that. It it's really, cool. one of the things I, was, I this morning I was reading the, about the way he describes his work with sound um, is to do with kind of being really interested in frequencies that you that you almost don't notice until they're absent. Mm. And this, definitely going from that first room to the second, where we're dealing with very sort of thin, high-pitched frequencies that you kind of... I feel those frequencies like in my throat. Like, mm. it, you definitely... All of this was... Multisensory is a bit of a, like a kind of buzzword bullshit thing but it really was like you were feeling the sound as well as hearing it and um seeing it and seeing it yeah um but to go from that to very very deep sound that again you feel you know you feel in your bones um was just it was like a sort of sound bath really it was like one of the things that i really loved about it was that it just didn't give you space to think about anything else it took over all of your sight all of your sound all of your feeling not in a way that i would describe as overwhelming like i was i was fully whelmed like i was up to my whelm capacity but i didn't feel like it wasn't a stressful feeling it felt quite sort of safe in a way yeah and i guess what the like the beauty of it is is that you could always travel on to the next like, you know when you do feel like you've had enough of that like yeah you could always travel on through and like everything had a kind of linking moment where it was like there was maybe a bit to walk like a tunnel or like a, you know. A, yeah. And yeah, this, the the actual building like itself was amazing as well. Like 180 The Strand is so like brutalist and they leave a lot of it exposed. So like you yeah. have these amazing light installations and sound installations in amongst like bricks and pipework and like dingy, dark, yeah. horrible kind of horribly beautiful brutalistness mm-hmm. and i um so a lot of the work um that he does is based around kind of data sets which is one of the things i'm really interested in as like, when i make graphic scores is how to make sound from data and mm. um i think uh one of my favorite rooms was the dataverse so the three massive screens that mm. played that 12 minute kind of sequence um 
I heard him this morning, I heard him talk about that. And he said that it took about 16 years to come to fruition. Oh my God. He said, he so he didn't finish school. He was like, he left school when he was very young. And um, he said, so that stuff was, it was all real data, all real world data. So there was stuff about quantum physics in there. There was stuff about um, kind of geographical data. There was uh, there was um, kind of anatomical data. I know I was like going to say, yeah, there, there was a lot brain of like, stuff yeah. and how proteins are formed and all that stuff. And he basically said that like through this, the development of this work was how he taught himself all of that stuff. Um, so he would like find interesting data sets and then spend years trying to understand them before it was ready to be shown. And you pointed out afterwards, and I think not just for this room, I think it's true for the whole exhibition. You couldn't, a lot of the rooms, you couldn't see it all at once or you couldn't hear it all at once. So you had to make choices. And so your experience of that exhibition and mine will be very, very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's something really nice about I think for me there's something really liberating about it just being impossible to see it all Mm -hmm. which takes off the pressure to try and see it all and so like in that first room where you had those kind of uh, those sort of blocks with screens on the top and there was kind of six or seven and I was aware that they were doing different things but at the time I just wanted to look at one of them Mm. and it was nice to not feel like oh am I missing something the one that looked like Mitchie's Little midges, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, this is this is where I'm at right now. I want to look at some midges. This is where I need to be. And it's really not, and similarly in the in the room with the big, three big screens, there was usually one that I was kind of drawn to. And Same, the, I guess I'm yeah. aware of the other ones in my peripheral vision. But there's something really nice because I think one of the things that um and I definitely felt this and had to kind of work through it for a long time was a feeling that when you go to see art that you have to to take it all in and it's quite stressful because well it is overwhelming and so like sometimes people don't like galleries because they they feel there's a kind of pressure and there's an expectation to do something to each work to look at something for the same amount of time as something else or Mm. to and and one of the things that i learned that really helped me to sort of love art was to realize that i didn't have to look at everything I didn't have to like everything and um, there were no rules about any of that stuff. Yeah. And so it's quite nice when that, that choice is sort of taken away from you because it's like, well, there's three massive screens and you've only got two eyes. So like, and figure also it out like, for yourself. You don't need to know about everything. Like, yeah. you know, I hadn't ever come across his work before. Mm. Still don't really know that much about him at all, mm-hmm. but was able to appreciate the exhibition yeah massively absolutely you know? yeah and like i could tell there was a lot of like heavy data work and like you know there's a lot of code wasn't there like flashing up and all that yeah but yeah. i don't need to know what that means i i can just enjoy the aesthetic and the sound and the experience of what that's giving me definitely um, and i yeah. think it's a it's an exhibition that kind of like it rises to respond to the way that you're feeling when you yeah. see it so i can imagine on a different day where I'm feeling a very different way, I would have a very different experience of that exhibition. It kind of gives you everything and it gives you... There's a couple of works that it really reminded me of, actually. So there was one um, a couple of years ago or last year. Time has, like, lost all meaning since lockdown, so I don't really understand the passage of time. But um, there was a a Namjoon Pak exhibition at Tate Modern. And so Namjoon Pak was another artist that was really interested in uh, visuals and sort of TVs and that kind of like digital art. And he he worked with uh, John Cage a lot. So it was around, mm-hmm. it was the f- Fluxus movement that was going on. And um, the sort of final room of his exhibition was this massive work of his called the Sistine Chapel, which was a room that was um, just, every surface had kind of, was projected videos that kind of didn't, so didn't link up, there wasn't a reference between them, um, that were projected and kind of pasted over each other on every single wall and on the ceiling, um, that would kind of shift um, and kind of move through a sequence at different paces, depending on which projector it was coming from. Um, 
and it was a similar feeling of like just being kind of surrounded kind of enveloped by all of this information and i saw that exhibition a massive number of times like huge number of times while it was there and every time i went into that final room i was still seeing video footage i'd never seen before mm. um and it, it created a similar feeling of like I don't know, safety is the way that I describe it. I feel felt very safe and serene in that space because it was just, it was like being held by something. Um, and there's another video artist called Chris, uh, Christian Markley who um, a couple of years ago I went to see uh, his work, The Clock, at White Cube Gallery. So he'd taken like thousands of fragments of film and TV um, where a clock was visible in in the shot and made this 24 hour work so that um, it was set to the kind of local time of the exhibition. So you could use it as an actual clock. It would reflect the, the real time. Um, but it was almost like kind of letterbox, um, letterbox visuals. So you had this mass massive screens that had kind of strips, you know, 16, 20 strips of all different um, film and the the continuity was that there was a there was a clock in in the shot and so there would be some in which the um the people in the shot would be you know referencing the time or the time would be part of the plot and somewhere it was completely incidental and obviously well maybe some people did but um you probably didn't see the whole piece you saw a sort of time of it right and again you can't see the whole work because it, it's so much information but a kind of similar sense of like, um, just sort of awe. Something quite awesome. nice about the passing of time there as well. And mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. I definitely felt like the last room we were in, it was probably the most intense like lighting and stuff. And like felt like I was being shot at one point. Like, yes, this kind of like with like intense lights, but it was so great. And like people could kind of step into the projection and kind of be projected onto which i kind of yeah. liked as well and um, then you were spewed out onto the street directly onto the street yeah. which was like Just you know felt a bit weird it was like yeah it was one you definitely felt altered in some way when you yeah i think that. i definitely felt cleansed i yeah. didn't go in as as frustrated as i i didn't leave as frustrated as i went in with like, definitely um and it's on till like august 1st so there's still time to go and see it yeah, I would. I would ten out of ten recommend to a friend. Yeah, um, and you took some nice shots, some nice video, didn't you? So we can yeah, yeah. share that. We'll we'll entice you in with our sexy iPhone. Exactly, vids. and then, yeah. um, yeah, Akida can say can can give us a little cut for my absolutely commission, please. Yeah, um, one of the other things that I texted you about the other day that I was really happy about was oh, yeah, the this is great. the um. Yeah, so turf, as we know, or may not, um, is the term uh, that we use to describe a group of people. Um, the term, it, so turf means trans-exclusionary radical feminists. So it's a group of people who are not kind or inclusive of the trans community. And we've heard about that a lot in the news over the last few years. People like Jermaine Greer and JK Rowling and a kind of rhetoric which is about protecting feminist spaces um, to be um, exclusive um, places that trans communities are not allowed to enter. And it, I would categorise it as a very hateful movement. Yeah. Um, and, as a, and a very negative movement. Um, and I've always sort of felt like the term TERF is a strange one because, well, I don't think they deserve the title feminist for a start. I think it goes against what feminism at its core is about. So I saw a little video where a woman had proposed that we change the name to feminist appropriating radical transphobes. Um, so for a start, good to have transphobe in there because mm. I think that's what they definitely are. Um, feminist appropriating is a, a much better term to describe what they do, where they pick and choose bits of feminist ideology and add in their own bits as and when they see fit. But the best bit about it is um, that the acronym is now FART. 
I think that's magnificent. So I think we should call them farts now. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say it starts here. Like, yeah. I will now be referring to them as farts. And yeah. thank you for enlightening us, Kim. I think that's fucking marvellous. We brilliant. need to find, we need to share the original video as well. Find yeah, out who I'll did find that. that. Yeah, um, that's it. Because that's a great yeah. idea. You're right. I've never felt comfortable with them being called radical feminists because I know plenty of radical feminists who are fucking brilliant and who include trans people in their ideology in their life. And it's not a fucking debate of someone's existence. Fuck off. You're a fart. You're just a fart. And there's something kind of disarming disempowering yeah about um uh kind of use of humor like we talked about with the gorilla girls i think with the use of kind of humor and mockery to kind of uh disempower groups yeah. so to us they will always be known as farts here's to that um have you been listening to or watching or reading anything interesting in the last little while i read i just read a book called don't fall in love sam that mm -hmm. actually was, I mentioned Sam Morris on our eroticism episode. You did? And it is yeah. Sam Morris's book that. Oh, right. Um, yeah, it became my Bible for about three days and I just rinsed it because. Oh, lovely. It's just hit me at a time in my life where I feel it really resonated and it's his kind of diary of love and loss and mm. experience and human experience and sensuality and. Um, it's so raw and beautiful and yeah. intimate. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I'm listening to um, really like Lauren Vula's new record, Pink Noise. It's just like an eighties pop fucking album, and it's oh, incredible. Amazing. I haven't and heard it yet. I'm oh, it's incredible. It's like I, I think she said she came out of the womb wearing shoulder pads. You know, it's like her going back <laughs> to like her room, her roots. Um, and I think Laura's a great example of like an, a stonkingly good musician and composer and producer and a fierce, fierce woman in the industry that's been let, that, that the industry's not always liked. You yes. know, she was like really successful when everyone wanted her to be, then they just dropped her for no reason. Mm -hmm. And now she's come back doing her thing on her terms and she's fire and I love to see it. Yes, and actually, as we see a lot... Um that kind of being dropped was the best thing because it allows you to kind of redefine yourself and yeah. it's her rules and what she wants to do. And she, you're right, she's brilliant. Yeah. Very, very brilliant. Love, 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 love. What about you? Um, I, I've read a couple of kind of short books in the last few days that are really amazing, um, both that will kind of stick with me for a long time. One is... James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room. <gasps> actually oh my God. I read that. I love Isn't it. Isn't it gorgeous? It's so um, gorgeous. And yeah, so I, ha I hadn't read any James Baldwin before, although he's always been on uh, my kind of to read list. And this is a really beautiful, very short little novella about an American man in Paris. Um, his, his girlfriend is traveling and he's alone in Paris. And it's about his relationship with um, a man called Giovanni. And there's this bit in it where... Um, so there's this kind of accompanying character, isn't there? This kind of older man who um, is is kind of friends with the protagonist. And there's a kind of tension about the how the two people approach that relationship. There's a little mm. bit of kind of mutually recognised exploitation of the other. Um, yeah. And so there's, it comes to the first time that they both of both Jack and uh, the protagonist see Giovanni in this bar, um, they're both very drawn to him. Mm. And then there's a point where it becomes really apparent that Jack, the older man, is not going to have... It's not going to go the way he wants it to go. Yeah. Um, and it creates this kind of resentment between the two of them. But he says, um, I guess he addresses it in the bar one night and it, there's this passage. Um, love him, said Jack, with vehemence. Love him and let him love you. Do you think anything else under heaven really matters? And how long at the best can it last since you're both men and still have everywhere to go? Only five minutes, I assure you. Only five minutes, and most of that will be in the dark. 
And if you think of them as dirty, then they will be dirty. They will be dirty because you will be giving nothing. You will be despising your flesh and his. But you can make your time together anything but dirty. You can give each other something that will make both of you better forever. If you will not be ashamed, if you will only not play it safe. He paused watching me and then looked down at his cognac. You play it safe enough, he said in a different tone and you'll end up trapped in your own dirty body forever and ever and ever like me. And I just think that is <laughs> extraordinary. Yeah. Um, is, is a, yeah, so I, I, that is a brilliant book. Um, it really deals with all that shame and yeah, everything. And it's this beautiful, chaotic, forbidden love, isn't it? It's like it is, yeah. And it's it's, it's about kind of it is about the impact people have on each other, yeah. You know, knowingly yeah. or unknowingly, yeah. Um, and I really like those kind of books where. It's just a little tiny snapshot in time. You don't yeah, have someone's whole life story. Yeah, it's not a big long story. plot. It's it's a real it's quick snapshot. Yeah, you've you've no, you don't know what came before or after, apart from a couple of mm-hmm. little references. And there's no sense of like needing it to be completely tied up, like often is the case in kind of modern narrative. It's just like mm-hmm. like someone's opened a little window and you peek in, and then that's it. It's closed. It's finished. Yeah. Um, but I think it. It's just absolutely stunning. And then I found a Bell Hooks book called um, Teaching as uh, Teaching to Transgress, which is about, um, the subtitle is Education as the Practice of Freedom. And she has a chapter on it um, about eroticism in education. Wow. Um, and sort of, so the way that she talks about it is um, that we have decided that there's a there should be always a split between body and mind. And that when you are learning, that should be just mind. And you you kind of, um, it's emotionless and it is very, very focused. And so um, her kind of retort to that is that passion, uh, as we have talked about extensively in the eroticism episode, is an incredibly powerful tool for learning and inspiration. And that we need to realise that body and mind are never split up and it's only an illusion that they ever were and the closer we get to embracing that the better we learn and we inspire through teaching mm. um and it, yeah it's a really beautiful book yes yes I yes highly recommend. yeah so sick. although there are lots of things in the world that are feeling pretty gnarly and not very nice it's been really nice to go to that exhibition yesterday but also just talk about things that we really love. Yeah, we will continue to do that. We'll continue to bring you the, the good and the bad and everything in between because we believe in reflecting life in its most true form and that's exactly. that's it. Exactly. Yeah, there we go. Nice. See All you right later. Then. See you later. Have a great day, Kim. And you. Bye.